0: this study in the book of Revelation. Um, I just have a good time as we open up the Word of God each Sunday evening and uh, we're looking at this in detail and just studying more and more about this remarkable plan that God has to uh, bring the history of this world to a close. I've talked through, whoa, I don't need that much help. Are you ready? Okay. I've taught through the book of Revelation on several occasions, but I have never given it the detailed study that we've been doing here. And there are many people who look into the book of Revelation and they consider it to be such a daunting task and so difficult uh, to discover the mysteries that are in the book that they simply give up on it. And so the book of Revelation uh, sort of remains a book of the Bible that hangs out there towards the end, and all that we know about it are a few verses that it says about heaven and a few verses that says that it says about hell but god didn't intend for us to leave any of his word out uh, all of it is profitable for us and uh, just because we find that something hard to understand and takes a lot of study to do uh, doesn't mean that we have an excuse not to do that and so we are to look into the word of god and try to uh, find out what god would have us to know and when we explore the book of revelation we we do find that the details of it bring great hope for those of us who are believers in Christ, but at the same time it brings great horror to those who aren't. And then on the other hand, you have people that really don't want to skip the book of Revelation, but rather they want to spend all their time there. And they seem to have found out some things, or they think they have, that... Uh, are to remain mysteries. There are just simply some things here that we we can't know about. Uh, For example, I talked to someone not long ago who's a preacher, who very seriously looked me in the eye and he said, I know the time when Jesus is coming back. Now, I would say if you have found out the time that Jesus is coming back by reading the book of Revelation, that either you have spent too much time reading it, or you haven't spent enough, enough time reading it. And I don't know which one that it is. But there are some things that will always remain a mystery to us until Jesus comes. Because he has said that there's no way that we can figure that information out. But just because there's some things that we can't know doesn't mean that we aren't to study this book. Then we also find that the book of Revelation can be confusing enough with the things that are written here. And yet you have some people who want to fictionalize Revelation... And so you have some people like Tim LaHaye and and, uh, uh, Jerry Jenkins, I believe it is, who wrote the Left Behind series. And they thought, I guess, that they were doing Christianity a great service by getting people uh, interested in the end times. But actually what they've done is a great disservice to Christianity because whenever you fictionalize the Word of God and you play around with it, then you can always lead people to believe that there are other parts of the Word of God that are simply fiction. We don't have the right to take God's Word and to play with it as if it's our own. And so there are some things that are beyond our ability to understand, and we don't uh, mess with those things, even with the disclaimer that we may not know that we're talking about. We're not to trifle with God's Word. Now, having said that, again, Revelation does have some very confusing parts and some things that are in it that we can never know for certain, but there is still much that we can learn from it, and there are some things that we can know and there are some very helpful things that are for the edification of God's people. Now, thus you have the introduction to my sermon tonight, which has absolutely nothing at all to do with what I'm going to preach about. So we're going to take, turn to the Scriptures now and, and look at another remarkable portion in the Word of God, uh, Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11. If you'd stand with me, please. We're going to read these verses down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Revelation 13, verse number 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth many wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by its sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that with understanding count. The number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. I'm going to warn you before I even start the message tonight. We're not going to talk about that last verse tonight. That comes a a few weeks down the road, and that's the one that most people want to know about. What about six six six? Well, that's that's going to come a little bit later on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Help us to learn from this, and we do believe that these things are written in your book uh, for our learning, for our edification. So Lord, help us to uh, pay close attention to learn something from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're getting a little bit of a late start tonight, so I'm going to preach a fast message. Hopefully, uh, I'll talk fast tonight and Hopefully, we'll get you out of here in a good time. But John begins uh, uh, verse number 11 in this passage that we just read. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. Now, if you'll glance back at verse number 1, there he says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now, for several weeks, we discussed that beast that comes out of the sea, and that's the beast that I term the A in abomination. Jesus called him the abomination of desolation. And this man is the world's last ruler, the world's last earthly kingdom. He rules that kingdom, and of course, as you know, he is the Antichrist. And the A in abomination stands for Antichrist. Someone asked me a question as we were studying through that portion of Scripture. Uh, They said, how can you describe the Antichrist as being attractive when the description that's given to him in verse number 1 is that he is a beast with seven heads and ten horns? Well, how could you ever call a creature like that beautiful? Well, the important thing that we need to understand about this is that the term beast there and the description of him as a a many-headed monster, that is simply a metaphorical description. The many heads are the coalition of his kingdom. The horns represent power. But the actual person looks nothing like this description. And the same is true when we come to this the second beast in verse number 11. The description there is a metaphor. And the description is very grotesque. But the person who is behind the metaphor is nothing at all like that. Uh, he is a person who is uh, attractive. He is alluring. He draws people to him. They adore him because he is appealing to man's wicked sensibilities. Now, the first beast... I call the A an abomination, and the second one we'll call the subtle seer. Now, we know him, uh, if you've studied the book of Revelation, as the false prophet. A seer is a prophet, and this prophet is also an antichrist. Now, he's not the antichrist, that's the first beast that we've talked about, but this man is also an antichrist, he is against Christ, and he is the, the Antichrist's right-hand man, and he's no less against Christ than was this first beast. Now, in the passage here, we, we notice as we read this that he's not called the false prophet here. But we do have other references in Revelation where he's called that. Now, I'm not going to turn to those right now. We'll look at those a little bit later on in some of the other messages. But in chapters 16, 19, and 20, he's called the false prophet. And a prophet is a seer. So this false prophet, in every way, is a perfect companion to the beast that comes before him. Now, we're going to discuss this false prophet in the next three messages, and we're going to see the part that he plays in the end times. So what is the purpose of this second beast? Well, first we can say about him that he is a false messiah. The Antichrist is a political genius, and he'll be very adept at forging political alliances. And he's so convincing that he can persuade the rulers of the many kingdoms of the world to give up their sovereignty and to throw all of their support behind him so that he becomes the ruler of the world, of so the entire earth. Now his abilities, this the abilities of the Antichrist, lie mainly in the political arena. But the second beast serves another function and it's his job to form religious alliances. Now his purpose then is to gather all the religions of the world together and eventually he turns them to one new type of religion and that is the worship of the Antichrist. So this person is a religious ruler. And as the Antichrist is the greatest politician that the world has ever seen, so this man is the greatest preacher that the world has ever seen. Now, his function then is mainly religious, and he serves the Antichrist by helping him to gain control over all of the world's religions. Now, in the first part of the 11th verse, we gain a little bit of insight into his identity. Now, I don't believe that we can find out who this person actually is, although there are several names that I suggest for uh, the kind of person that he is and what kind of preacher that he resembles, And you'll notice here that it says that he is a beast that rises out of the earth. Now, the first beast is a beast that rises out of the sea. And it's very significant that it tells us here this particular one comes from the earth. And that's because the sea is a place of turmoil. The Antichrist arises out of all this political turmoil that have come about because of the effects of God's wrath poured out ...during the time of tribulation. There's an economic mess that ensues from all of that. And so there's trouble everywhere. And this person presents a plan of what can be done about it. And nobody knows what to do about it. But here comes a man and he presents a plan to end all of that political chaos. And the people of the world accept that recovery plan. They readily join forces with him. Now there have been many uh, such men in history... ...that have risen out of that type of political turmoil... Economic distress and uh, political turmoil is actually a breeding ground for tyrants. And there are people that have been willing to turn over everything that they have and they'll follow someone if that person promises them that they can heal their economic distress or take care of their problems. If that person can provide just a little bit of relief, then they gladly throw in behind him. Now, the sea represents that type of chaos, In John's world, the great sea was the Mediterranean Sea. And so we gather from that that the Antichrist most likely will come from one of those nations that is around the Mediterranean Sea. But the second beast, the scripture says, comes up out of the earth. And so he's different. Now, many Bible expositors believe that the earth here represents a settled place. It's a place where there is calm and there is reason. It doesn't have the upheaval of a windswept sea. And so this beast that comes up out of the land represents most likely, I think, the land of Israel. Now, if the the sea represents the Mediterranean and that person is a Gentile who is the Antichrist, then this person is most likely a Jew who comes from the land of Israel. Now, I think that's very important because the Jews are still looking for a Messiah. And there's no way that they're going to accept a Messiah who does not come from Israel. Now, of course, we know from reading both the Old and the New Testaments that the people very clearly expected that when the Messiah would come, that he would come from the Jewish nation, that he would be here to establish the kingdom of David in an everlasting kingdom. Now, for that reason, then we can say that the second beast is an imitator. And his imitation is that of Christ, because that is exactly, precisely what Christ will come to do. Jesus will come back, and one of his purposes is to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that the kingdom of David will be established into an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. Now, the Jews of today are much like the Jews that are in the Old Testament, and that is that they have rejected Christ as the Messiah. So they don't accept him, and what they will accept is an imitator. And that's what this man is. They are waiting for the imitation, and they're going to get him. Now, we notice that Jesus says something about false messiahs. In Matthew chapter 24, he said, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. The old I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Now the last verse there is an interesting one, because the... Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were many such uh, false messiahs that came along in those ancient times. And he particularly talks about one by the name of Jonathan who led many Jews out into the wilderness professing that he could do signs and wonders. And there were many of the Jewish people that followed him out there because they were looking for someone, they were looking for a Messiah who could relieve them from some of the oppression that they had from Rome, who could possibly bring them out from under that empire. And so in the end times, the Jews are going to be looking for someone like this, uh, someone uh, who can lead them out, and they're going to be very easily duped. Times are hard, the economic chaos is there, and so these uh, Jews will receive the Antichrist and receive the lies of the false prophet because of the promises that they make. And it looks good because he allows them to rebuild their temple on uh, on the Temple Mount. And he allows them to reinstitute their sacrifices. Now, this false prophet is the man behind that, the one who puts it all together. But the deception is not going to last very long because their religion, just like false Christianity and all the other religions of the world, will be deposed in favor of the worship of the Antichrist. Now, you see, the Antichrist needs such a person like this because no matter what you do with the world politically, you have to do something with the world religiously. Uh, If you look back into history, and just recent history, go back to World War II, one of the things that Hitler tried to do was to cast off religion altogether. But eventually, he had to deal with it. Communist countries have tried to uh, eliminate religion and make the state God, but that has never worked. In fact, if you look at many statistics, uh, they show us that there were more people that were won to Christ under uh, the communist regime and, Soviet, and the Soviet Union than there were before communism came in. The church was thriving underground in that communistic system. Now, uh, up front, a false front was put up with the Eastern Orthodox Church. And the and the communist government permitted that with strict control. But all the time that that, that, that communist regime was there, there was a thriving church that was going on underground. Now, if you read the testimony of... Our missionary Alexander de Chalendeau, he can tell you about the hungering and the thirsting that there was for the word of God during all of that time. And so our missionary uh, smuggled Bibles into communist Russia, and there was this huge black market that was taking place there, where people wanted Bibles and other religious literature. And there were many people who did the same as he did, taking those th- those Bibles and taking this literature into communist Russia, and there people were hearing the gospel preach and people were being saved and we find that the same thing is true in China today that's the largest communist government in the world and yet they have not been able to stamp out Christianity and so what they have done they forged a compromise with it now they still don't allow open preaching but they realize that they can't stop this and so what they do is they allow missionaries to give the gospel even in a very hostile environment now why does that happen? Why, does this, why, why can't you just get rid of Christianity? Why aren't these governments able to do something about it? Well, the reason is, is that God has built it into the heart of man to be religious. You don't have to educate people to believe that there is a God. Now, atheism fights against that all the time. They have to put out propaganda. They have to educate people in a way to make them believe that there is not a God. And so they're always struggling against that thing that's naturally in man's heart. Paul makes it very clear in Romans that people know about God naturally. He says, For the word of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. Now the problem here is that, and he explains it a little bit further as he goes on in the next verses, is that man's heart is so wicked... That even though he knows that there is a God, he doesn't know God personally. He doesn't understand God. Even though he's created in, in God's image, what does he do? He takes and he creates God in his image. And so Paul goes on and he talks about how people make idols out of creeping things and all these things that are in the world. And the reason that he does that is because in his spiritually dead condition, he'll never recognize who the true God is. Now, the revelation of the true God can only be realized when the Holy Spirit opens up a man's heart to the gospel and illumines him to the truth of Jesus Christ. And until he hears that gospel, and until the Holy Spirit uses it to convince him and to convict him of sin, he'll never understand who God truly is. And then the Holy Spirit, when he does all this, he turns a person to repentance and faith to Christ. Now that shows us, and by reading the Word of God, that all of this is God's work. Bringing a person to believe is God's work. But none of that changes the fact that man is naturally religious. And so it's ever going to remain true that the only way that you're going to make uh, people happy is to satisfy that natural religious inclination. And so people are always going to rebel when you try to take away their gods. And it doesn't matter what they believe in. If you try to separate from them from their religion, they are not going to be happy. And so the Antichrist is not going to try to stamp out religion. He'll compromise with religion. Because the world's kingdoms would remain unsettled unless he does this. And the Antichrist can't afford to do that. He needs the whole world to be subdued and to be united with him. And so he doesn't try to get rid of religion. He just tries to channel it in a different direction. He tries to channel it towards him. So he becomes a political savior and a religious savior as well. That is the job of the false prophet. It's his job to preach the Antichrist and to turn people to him. So the Antichrist needs this second beast because he helps to consolidate the power. Now, I think there's one thing that we really need to understand today, and that is that Satan is not afraid of religion. He's not afraid of religion. Satan is not busily trying to make atheists. You know, in some ways, I think that atheism could probably be a bigger hindrance to Satan than it is a help. Satan would much rather that people would get comfortable in a false religion rather than having no religion at all. Now, in the New Testament, you don't find the apostles using up all their energy trying to find atheists and trying to root out atheists. Now, they were always doing this, though. They're always fighting off off false prophets that rise within Christianity because that is the biggest threat. Now, perversions of the gospel are very serious, and that's why Satan has so many false preachers out in the world using the very same Bible that we use, preaching from the very same scriptures that we use, and yet twisting them and perverting them in order to get people to be confused about what is the truth. Now, down through the centuries, the biggest threat to Christianity has been Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism started off by doing exactly what the Antichrist will do. They began by wedding the church to the state. And so what they did was they created an ecclesiastical power joined with political power. And in the process of that, if you look back into the history of the Roman Catholic Church, you'll find that they were more than willing to compromise with the paganism of the Roman Empire in order to achieve their goal. And so thus... The state gets what it wants, and the church gets what it wants. Now, after so many years of this, the world has been duped into thinking that Catholicism is synonymous with Christianity. And you have many Protestants that are very confused about this as well because they've been fooled into thinking that Reformed theology is nothing more than patched-up Catholicism. If you ever get the chance, go on Richard Bennett's website, and there you can find an article entitled, "The Identifying the Early Church. And one of the things that he says is that the, original, that the Roman Catholic Church was the original schismatic. There's nothing to reform in Rome because Rome was never a true church. Now, they are false Christianity. And existing alongside the Roman Church all throughout the history of the church and being vigorously persecuted by Roman Catholicism was the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can go out in our foyer and you can pick up a copy of The Trail of Blood and there you can find the history of the uh, true church history and you'll find that the gospel that we as Baptist people are preaching today is one and the same with what was preached in the very beginning with Jesus and the apostles. And there's a history of that all, through down, uh, all the way down through uh, the times until we come to this very hour, existing aside, right alongside of Roman Catholicism. Now, a false religion that imitates Christianity is nothing at all new for Satan. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if its ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works." Now, you'll notice that false apostles and deceitful workers are not transforming themselves into the apostles of Buddha. And they're not transforming themselves into the apostles of Allah. They are transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Satan's ministers appear to be ministers of righteousness, but they're false prophets who are teaching a damnable doctrine. Now, when the Antichrist comes, he's not going to try to do away with religion. He's fine with that. And so he and the subtle seer try to turn worship away from the multitude of gods, whatever that might be, to only one God. And that one God is the Antichrist. So the, the uh, subtle seer here, the false prophet, is a false messiah. And the Jews will be fooled by him as well as the rest of the world. Now we notice, secondly, false mannerisms. Revelation 13, 11 and 12 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Now this second beast is an imitator, and his mannerisms make him look like the real Christ. Now, there is more significance to this, that one beast comes out of the sea and one comes out of the land. And this is because the ancient people that John was writing to had great fear of the unknown. To them, the sea was a very foreboding place because it was a great unknown. If you read the history of mythology, you'll find that there was a great fear of the sea. The people knew how fearsome that the sea could be, and so they would stay away from it. Uh, If you remember the story that we read in the book of Acts, when Paul was transported from Caesarea by the sea to Rome, the trip took so long that it left them out there on the sea in the wintertime when sailing wasn't safe. And so when they pulled into the port at Fair Havens, Paul advised the shipmaster and the guard that was guarding him, he said, you need to stay here because it's not safe to sail on the sea. But they didn't listen to Paul. Now, Paul had experience with this. He'd been shipwrecked before, but they didn't listen to him. And so they tried to sail on. And just as Paul said, the winds came up, that that, that terrible wind came up, and the ship was lost and the cargo was lost exactly as Paul said that it would. Now, these people knew the power of the sea. And according to their superstitions, it was the gods that stirred up the sea. And they believed that there were great sea monsters that were in the sea. And that's what caused all of the turmoil of of the sea. Now, people were always afraid of it then because it was an unknown. And so when John says that there is a beast that rose up out of the sea, it conjured up those kinds of thoughts in the people's minds. They had images of a beast that arises from the sea that's most terrifying. But there's the second beast, and this is the beast that comes out of the land. And he doesn't seem to be as terrifying as the one before. Now, there's an indication by reading the text that he is inferior to the first beast, and, one, and in one sense he is, because he's subordinate to him. His job is to magnify that first beast. But he doesn't appear as terrible as the Antichrist. But it's all false. In verse number 12, it says that he exercises all the power of the beast before him. And that's because uh, that dragon, the old serpent Satan is the one who gives him his power just like he does to the Antichrist. But we notice here the description that goes along with deception. He has two horns like a lamb. Now we go look at that first beast. He has, he has ten horns, and the ten horns are symbolic of great power. These are the mighty horns of the confederation of power. But this second beast doesn't have those kinds of horns. He has the horns of a lamb. And so we notice then the meekness of the lamb. And this is part of his false mannerisms, the meekness of the lamb. We just discussed, he's a great imitator. Now, why do you think that the scriptures describe him as a lamb? That first beast was described as a lion, a bear, and a leopard, but this one is described as a lamb. Why? Because he's an imitator, he's a false prophet. He imitates Christ, who is the lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And he's talking about Jesus. So it's no accident, it's no coincidence that the lamb mentioned here uh, is a man who mimics the meekness of Jesus. So he doesn't have big horns like a bull. He doesn't have the horn of a rhinoceros. He has the little nubs of a lamb. And that speaks of meekness and gentleness. And friends, that is a characteristic of false prophets. Now we're going to get mean. I haven't been mean yet. Now we're going to get a little bit serious here, I think. Think back just a few years. Think back to Pope John Paul II. Pope John Paul was pope for 27 years, the second longest time of any pope in the 1,500-year history of the Roman Catholic Church. During that time, he was considered to be the best-loved pope of all time. Why? Because he was so meek and gentle. Now, in contrast, if you've done much reading about the present pope, he's known more as a bull. And that's because he's very slow to appease people by compromise. But John Paul II wasn't like that. He was a great compromiser. He he was just too gentle to stand harshly on things. Now, you see, that is really the character of a false prophet. He's very meek. And so people will look at this man just like they looked at John Paul. Now, John Paul, of course, claimed to be the vicar of Christ. The Pope claims to be the representative of Christ on earth, and he claims to be infallible. And people looked at John Paul II, and they thought, well, what a marvelous example of Christ he is. What a fine man that he is. And they had no trouble bowing before him and kissing his ring. George Bush, the President of the United States, kissed the ring of the Pope. Billy Graham called him the greatest man, one of the greatest men who ever lived. He called him a fine Christian and an example of Christ. Now, what they didn't see was that underneath those robes was really the blackness of hell. Underneath those robes beat the heart of a man who accepted the centuries-old atrocities of Roman Catholicism. Underneath those robes were the deceit of a man who put up with sexual abuse and the homosexuality of priests for years and tried to hide it and tried to keep the sins quiet and shifted it around from one diocese to another. Now, there are many false prophets that try to model the meekness of Jesus, but they're deceivers, and they don't have the heart of Jesus Christ at all. And you not only see that in Catholicism, but you see it in other religions of the world as well. The Dalai Lama has been called a great man by our presidents. And then we look at the sweetness of Osteen, look at his smiles, look at his little orphan Annie curls, and tell me that that's not lovely and inviting. Well, these people have little nubs for horns. They would never hurt a fly. But friends, the doctrine that they preach will send a person to hell just as quickly as an Islamic suicide bomber who thinks he's promised 40 virgins on the other side. The deceivers are false Christ. They promise good things and they promise blessings, but they cannot deliver. The Apostle Jude described them perfectly. He said, These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These are false prophets that promise peace and prosperity when there is neither. Jeremiah said, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall. In the time of their visitation they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Friends, the Pope does not blush when he blasphemes the blood of Jesus Christ in the Mass. He does not blush when he exalts Mary and calls her a co-redeemer with Christ. Osteen does not blush when he abuses the Scripture and reduces God to a sugar daddy who's here for one purpose, and that's to satisfy your greed and your discontent. They're not at all ashamed. They don't blush. But the Word of God says they will fall they shall be cast down. Now, this false prophet pretends to have the character of Christ. He's cool. He's calculating. He's not meek. He is maniacal. His part of the empire is religion, and typical of all false religions, he is one who mocks the name of Christ. Now, let me finish very quickly with this, and that is the meanness of the lie. You see, whenever you have a false gospel, you're not talking about something that's harmless. This is not something that matters very little whether or not you get it right. Now, if you wonder why I preach like this, and you think, well, you're just too harsh, you're too intolerant, you shouldn't be so mean to all these religious charlatans. If that's what you think, then you do not understand the consequences of false teaching. We cannot afford to be sweet and nice and keep our mouths shut. And the reason for that is because there is an eternal destiny of the soul. It matters what you believe. Now here, uh, Jesus clearly knew about the false prophets. And while he had compassion on the souls of men, we find that he was unforgiving in his condemnation of false prophets. He cut them no slack. I don't have time to read it now, but you can go over to Matthew chapter 23. And we'll get to that way on down the road sometime in our study of Matthew. But there you'll find his attitude towards false teaching. And he gave scathing condemnation to the scribes and Pharisees who taught a lie. And then we have that unrelenting condemnation from Paul. He said in the book of Galatians, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that, that you have received, let him be accursed. Now twice he says that a person who preaches another gospel should be accursed. Now, this is not part of my message. I didn't intend to throw it in, but I'm going to say it anyway. What was he talking about there when he was talking about a false gospel? Well, if you look at the context of what Paul is speaking about, he's talking about those who had turned the grace of God into some kind of work that man can do for his own salvation. Now, you can translate that into all the religions of the world that are false, and it comes down to this, that they have a works religion, whether it's the sacraments that they keep, all the other things that they do, their baptisms, their, their, uh, their, their communion times, their, their rosaries, and, and their, uh, just, just all these kinds of things, like, like the confessional and all of that. It's a works-based salvation, which is exactly what Paul is talking about. And he says, let them be accursed. John Stott wrote this. He said, We are not to be dazzled, as many people are, by the person, gifts, or offices of teachers in the church. They may come to us with great dignity, authority, and scholarship. They may be bishops or archbishops, university professors, or even the Pope himself. But if they bring a gospel other than the gospel preached by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament, they are to be rejected. We judge them by the gospel. We do not judge the gospel gospel by them. Now the meanness of the lie is that anyone who preaches a false gospel is guilty of a soul damning doctrine. You can't escape hell with a lie. Only the truth saves the soul. The false gospel is nothing but satisfied complacency. And the people who get involved in false gospels don't seek the truth because they think that they've already found it. And that is the deception of the false prophet. He convinces people to be satisfied in the worship of the Antichrist, thinking that they have found the real Savior. And thus, you have the real reason why Satan's not afraid of religion at all. Because if he puts out that false gospel and people believe it, then they think they're safe, they think they're secure, they believe that they're on the way to heaven, and they may believe it ever so sincerely. But if it's a lie, it sends them straight to the fires of hell. Now, friends, what we have to do when we preach uh, from this pulpit is to uphold truth at all costs. There cannot be any compromises on the truth because a half-truth is a whole lie. Now, what we have been charged to do here is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to convert sinners that are on their way to hell into saints that are on their way to heaven. And that's why we have to stand on the truth of the Word of God, why we do not compromise it, why we preach chapter by chapter and verse by verse to get out the entire panorama of all of God's Word so that people can believe the truth and be saved. Now, we're just getting a start into this. Just to start, we've got more messages to go. We'll get down and nail down some more details about it. But it's very, very important for us to understand. No matter how harsh it may be, no matter how mean that we might sound, the real meanness in the whole thing is souls dying and going to hell because they have believed the wrong thing, a false gospel. God does not overlook it. The Bible teaches that you must be a believer in Jesus Christ and if not, a believer in that sacrifice that he, by grace, you're saved by faith through grace and that is it and there is no other way that you can get to heaven. Anything other than that is a false gospel. It's a lie and people die and go to hell believing anything else. So we got some more to go and we'll talk some more about this subtle seer and what his job is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would use your word and we would understand very clearly as members of Berean Baptist Church that we must not compromise your truth. We must stand on it unequivocally. And though at times it seems like we're being harsh, yet the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is they should die and go to hell. And we can be as sweet and as calm and as... Easy going as we can possibly be, and sit right here and watch people die all around us and never know Christ is Savior. Lord help us to speak the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.